Here we are back again with another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where our guests discuss important health-related questions from an authentically Catholic perspective. We are physicians of the Catholic Medical Association, and we are sworn to uphold the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine, and are pleased to do so. And doing that with us a little bit later in the show today will be Sister Dr. Marisha Weber. And Sister Marisha is a psychiatrist, a member of the Religious Sisters of Mercy, and she is an expert in a number of things, but today we'll be talking about one of her areas of expertise, and that is screen addiction. You who have young adults and teenagers in your house know what I'm talking about. But first, we're going to talk about some recent medical news. Tom, on this show, we're, we're looking, we're going to travel a bit. We're going to travel. Oh, goody. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to visit Europe. We're going to visit uh, the great states of Arkansas, Mississippi, and Iowa. When I say that, I mean we're going to look at some recent news uh, regarding abortion. And I guess we'll start with sort of the negative and proceed to what I think most of us would say is the positive. And when I say the negative, um, many of us have uh, probably been following uh, the Irish Eighth Amendment debate. And so I think we want to bring our listeners up to speed on what's happening and what's happened there. I, I mean, I'm sure everyone has been listening to the story, but maybe not quite as intently as you and I have. No, and I participated in uh, Novena before the election. I had no idea it would be as lopsided as it was. I don't think anyone, even those on both sides of the issue, didn't think it would be so lopsided. Everyone predicted it to be very, very close. And it turns out it wasn't, that the uh, the citizens of Ireland voted about 63-33, somewhere in that. It was two to one. Yep. Yeah, easily two to one to repeal the Eighth Amendment uh, to their constitution. That amendment passed in 1983, interestingly, and I actually looked up the language to the amendment, and it's, it didn't appear in most of the mainstream media, but this is the language, and it reads, the state acknowledges the right to life of the unborn. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could pass that for yes. our Constitution? <laughs> the state acknowledges the right to life of the unborn, and with due regard to equal right to life of the mother. It guarantees in its laws to respect, and as far as practical, by its laws to defend and vindicate the right. I found that language to be rather beautiful. Yes, and how how people could not only reject it, but celebrate with tears of joy the right to abortion being brought into the country. I mean, I saw the pictures. I, I just don't understand that mindset. I found it interesting in reading various sources of the coverage. Um, and in, in many areas of mainstream media, it's being presented as sort of after the fact, a referendum on the Catholic Church and her teaching. Ireland being traditionally very, very Catholic, and those in favor of the repeal and pleased with the victory uh, are using this as evidence that sort of the error of Catholic and Catholic culture uh, in the country is over. You know, for instance, this is from the CBS page that read, and that landslide vote shows an overwhelming desire for change in a country once closely entwined with Catholic tradition. Uh, the prime minister went on to say that lawmakers, and this is a quotation, lawmakers will now move to allow women to get abortions in the first 12 weeks of pregnancy. Interestingly, that's an assumption that isn't necessarily correct. Now it will be legal to move in that direction for lawmakers. But from my reading, the majority of lawmakers in Ireland are pretty staunchly pro-life. So there's no guarantee this new law is suddenly going to pass. Fascinating. It just offers the mechanism for it to. So we have some good news? Well, I think it gets better if we, if we leave Ireland and move on to, I guess we'll go first to Arkansas. Have you ever visited Arkansas? That is one of the states I have never entered. <laughs> <laughs> well, it turns out Arkansas is about to be one of the safest places to be a newborn or an unborn child or oh, citizen That's a good thing. Yeah, the Supreme Court uh, recently declined to hear a challenge. Now, we have to remember, whenever we're talking about these court cases, it gets twisted around. So they declined to hear a challenge, which is a positive. Yes. Uh, they declined to hear a challenge to their law, which restricted um, access to abortion using the medical abortion medicines that we've talked about before. Yes. So the two medications. So their law that, that was challenged uh, required that anyone who uses the medications for abortion has to have a contact or a contract with someone at a hospital 
um, that could take care of women who have complications from those medications. Now, interestingly, that's pretty similar to the Texas law that was stricken in 2016, which required abortion-performing physicians to have privileges at a hospital. Um, This is similar. We we hope that this one isn't uh, stricken as well. But a lower court, uh, when first hearing this Arkansas uh, law described it as burdensome and unnecessary because the complications were extremely rare when the medicine was used in the early weeks of pregnancy, and that a local emergency room physician could handle those. Now, as an OBGYN, I really take issue with that <laughs> because some of those complications are very uh, just that complicated, and most emergency room physicians don't perform DNCs and other sort of emergi- emergency surgical procedures. But, but nonetheless, uh, a three-judge panel from the United States, it was the 8th District uh, in St. Louis Court of Appeals, they vacated the decision, which means they they effectively nullify the lower judge's uh, decision, saying that she failed to say how many women would be affected when she made that statement that not many women would be affected. Uh, And interestingly, there there, there was no dissent among the members of the Supreme Court that were noted from the nine justices. So unless Planned Parenthood, who was the main uh, party in in the suit, unless they get a new injunction from a different federal judge in court, Arkansas uh, will be able to enforce their statute, and it'll be one of the most restrictive abortion measures in the country. Well, thanks be to God. It certainly looks like that decision is going to hold. Now, that could change. Uh, These are these are. You know, tumultuous times, so we don't know. But uh, if that holds, it will be it will effectively eliminate the medication option for abortion in Arkansas. And if you just tuned in, you're listening to Doctor Doctor today. As Chris Stroud is going through some recent medical news, dealing with victories and losses for the unborn. From Arkansas, we move to yeah. We're going to travel now, sort of north northwest to Iowa. Uh, Not quite as positive news there, but things are happening. The state's law banning abortions if the fetal heart rate could be detected. Now, that would mean banning abortions from about six weeks on. It's debatable what gestational age that would use, but if the heartbeat could be detected, it would be illegal to perform an abortion. Now, what happened here is a temporary injunction has been put in place to prevent the law from going into effect, but only until the lawsuit details can be worked out. So Planned Parenthood and the clinic that performs the abortions and the state are in a three-way lawsuit now. And until some of the details of that lawsuit can be worked out, they've all three agreed to a temporary injunction. But the legislators did the right thing along with the governor. Uh, They did. The governor and the legislators did the right thing. Interestingly, the state's attorney general refused to represent the state in the case. And so the Thomas More Society from Chicago is representing the state at no charge because that's what they do. They do. And so it's, it's going to be fascinating to watch that play out. Interestingly, just sort of next door and a little south, closer to Arkansas and Mississippi, they have a ban on 15-week abortions and greater, along with a 24-hour wait period. That's on hold pending some other decisions at the appellate level. So in looking at all of the uh, the things that are happening across the country in abortion, it certainly feels like we're building towards a U.S. constitutional landmark decision. Uh, the, the, the workers in Iowa really believe that their case will be the one that goes to the Supreme Court, that, that really will be an up-and-down vote, up-or-down vote on Roe versus Wade. And now on to Chris's medical tip of the day, usually dealing with that half of the population affectionately known as women. So th- I think it may be more than half, actually. It probably is. It, it depends <laughs> if you count the numbers or count the influence. Oh, well, yeah. I, this would be numbers. Influence is far greater. That's not fair to even consider. That is not. Today's topic is something on which you are somewhat of an expert because I know you to be an avid exerciser. Yes, here I am recording and exercising equipment. Looking, looking dashing, I might add. Dashing through the through the grass. There's no snow here. So, Chris. We're going to talk about exercise and pregnancy. Is and that safe to do, Chris? Really? Yeah, is it, it? It is safe and good. And I'm going to call this the myth-busting session Ooh. of our show. Because one of the things that I hear the most from, from pregnant patients is what they've been told about something in pregnancy, usually by their mother or their mother-in-law or their coworkers. <laughs> Everyone around them suddenly becomes PhDs in pregnancy knowledge. 
And so we're gonna do a, <laughs> we're gonna do a little myth busting uh, on the show. So it is safe, but are there some times when it's unsafe to exercise in pregnancy? Yes, there could be medical slash pregnancy conditions that would make exercise unsafe. And everything that we say about this should be prefaced by saying talk to your obstetrical provider and find out. But there are conditions such as placenta previa, where the placenta is over the cervix, or whether the the mom is having preterm labor or preterm rupture of membranes or some of the complications of pregnancy like preeclampsia and those things where physical activity has to be limited. And women will know that. They will have been told that by their obstetrician. Yes, that is correct. But, you know, in a general sense, the way that I try to approach this topic and most pregnancy topics is to remind women they're designed to be pregnant. You and I aren't, but they're designed to be pregnant. And their creator also designed them to be a normal human. So if the activity they're considering is a normal human activity, it's generally okay in a normal, healthy pregnancy. So running, jumping, straining, even intimacy, those are normal human activities. Skydiving, snowmobile riding in Michigan, we invented that stuff. Don't, <laughs> don't do that when you're pregnant. Those aren't normal human activities. But can you snowmobile in Minnesota? Probably not. Probably not there either. So what benefits do women accrue from exercise during pregnancy? Well, you know, you could think of it in two ways. One would be just the normal benefits that anyone gains from exercise. But specific to pregnancy, we'll see women that are, that are more active and more fit have reduced back pain. They don't generally struggle with gastrointestinal issues like constipation as much. There's a lot of research that shows they may decrease their chance of developing some complications such as preeclampsia or blood pressure problems in pregnancy, diabetes in pregnancy called gestational diabetes, and even decrease their chance for having a cesarean section. Uh, most importantly, managing a healthy weight gain in pregnancy is much easier with exercise. And what's an appropriate amount of exercise? You, you know, I'm, I try not to quantitate these things, but some patients, like probably you, if you were pregnant, like numbers, and they want they want a specific. Yeah, every time I've been pregnant, I like numbers. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, the CDC actually quantitates it, and they say 150 minutes of moderate intensity aerobic activity every week. That's not that much. And that's for any adult. That's for any adult uh, who's pregnant. And then they go on to say... Well, I've heard that same amount for any adult, period. Right. So it's not... A, the point there is a good one in that this isn't unusual. It's not limited. It's right. not increased. It's just a healthy amount of physical activity. They go on to say moderate intensity means, you know, moving enough to raise your heart rate or be perspiring. Uh, I like the CDC's language. They say you can still talk, but you cannot sing. Now, I cannot sing when my heart rate is low. <laughs> so what are some of the safe exercises to do during pregnancy? Well, you know, anything aerobic, anything that has you moving. So if you like exercise classes, um, if you like swimming, which is particularly good because it doesn't uh, hurt the joints, which sometimes get a little stress and strain in pregnancy. Uh, weightlifting is fine. Running, jogging, walking, cycling, uh, especially stationary bikes. Those are all great to do so, in pregnancy. So what's not good to do? Well, you know, the things you have to think about are something that might involve trauma to the abdomen. That would be a problem. Yes. And one of the things I always remind some of my crazier athletes who are pregnant that like to do heavy weights, like CrossFit, um, <laughs> that in, in the last uh, months of pregnancy, their, jo their joints begin to loosen, and they can actually harm ah, their back yes. doing an activity that they could do with no problem before pregnancy. But because of some of the physiologic changes, they could actually injure themselves uh, while they're pregnant. So they need to be careful about this as well. And what are warning signs that a woman should stop the exercise she's doing? You know, uh, probably the best one would be lightheadedness. You know, uh. if, if you feel faint, you've probably pushed it too far. You know, there's a difference, I think, between the athlete who becomes pregnant and the pregnant woman who decides she needs to be active. Ah. Those are really two different people. The thing that I try to remind athletes who become pregnant is expect a deterioration in their performance. <laughs> if if yes. they were running seven-minute miles before, <laughs> they're not going to run seven-minute miles when they're 35 weeks pregnant. Mm, no. <laughs> but it's okay, it's okay to push, and it's okay to be tired. Just have reasonable expectations. Well, thank you for that wonderful advice for our pregnant listeners. And now, before we go to our break, I'll pose our medical trivia question of the day. When you look at your forearms, or when a venipuncturist looks at your forearms, they, say your, they see your veins and they look blue. And royalty have been referred to as blue blood since at least 1834 in the country of Spain. Which brings up the trivia question, is the blood in veins actually blue? And if it's not actually blue, why do the veins 
look blue. And if the blood in veins is blue, why don't we ever see blue blood leaking from a bleeding wound? And which brings us back to another question I didn't even have written down is why were they called blue bloods to begin with? So are, why are veins blue? And is the blood in veins blue? You'll have to wait toward the end of the show to find out. And we'll be back with our guest. Welcome back to our second segment of this episode of Dr. Doctor. I'm pleased to introduce Sister Marisha Weber. She's a religious sister of mercy. She's also a doctor of osteopathic medicine, which is pretty equivalent to an MD, except they also learn how to do manipulation. But that has nothing to do with her specialty, which is psychiatry. Having trained at that small uh, facility in southeast Minnesota known as the Mayo Clinic. She has a master's degree in theology from Notre Dame, and she now is the director of the Office of Consecrated Life in the Archdiocese of St. Louis. Uh, she does a number of worthwhile things, uh, but right now on this show, we're going to talk about screen addiction. Welcome, Sister Marisha. Thank you very much. You delighted know, to be here. Uh, we're delighted to have you. Uh, as a lead-in, I'll tell our listeners that the average high school senior these days spends a, over two hours a day texting, two hours a day on the Internet, an hour and a half on electronic gaming, and about 30 minutes on video chat, or over six hours a day with new media, usually on small screens. In fact, smartphones and screen time are their leisure time. You know, Tom, I would say parents are probably just, they're, they're passing out right now when they heard you say that, except they aren't <laughs> noticing this because they're looking at their screens, probably. Right, so they're, they're not listening, really, but it'll hit them later. So, sister, what do you mean by screen addiction? Screen addiction. Well, I'd like to back up just a second just to also put this in perspective. When you think that iPhones became available in 2007, that now most all leisure time is on some kind of gadget. Most often a cell phone, because you can put it in your pocket. Yes. In 11 mm. years, the changes in behavior, well, all leisure time, most all leisure time is from a cell phone. Well, I want to say a little bit then about what screen addiction is. So when you think of Internet addiction, which was first described, it's an excessive preoccupation with online behavior that interferes with normal day daily activities. You know, that is, it takes a priority over maybe family, school, or work. Screen addiction, more specifically, refers to addiction to an iPhone. So for example, we know um, these teens and sometimes young adults and adults are so preoccupied with their screen media that they're anxious that they're not able to access their phone. Or they pick up their phone to lift up their mood or to decrease their anxiety. It even disrupts their sleep. And they seem to be less interested in doing things with persons who are actually in front of them. That would be a description of someone who is addicted. It's interesting as I think about, you know, whether it's alcohol or, or any other type of addictive behavior, it seems like the great litmus test would be uh, just try it and see if it bothers you. And if you become anxious because you don't have your screen, then maybe that's a sign that you have a problem. Is that fair to say, sister? Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're even finding, like you're saying, that it was alcohol. We did not anticipate that something that we would not put in our mouth or inject into our veins to cause an addiction. So how is it that something that uses the most sensitive sense, our eyes predominantly, and now also our ears, could become addictive? We didn't understand that. But there's no question now that it's definitely addictive. And that's been demonstrated um, neurochemically as well as behaviorally. Um, what we've discovered with the neurochemistry is um, Marshall McLuhan, who was a pioneer in the study of the effects of TV on human behavior, he discovered that it was really the number of images and the rate of delivery that really altered the person's response more than the content or the subject matter. And now when we have this high-speed imagery stimulating our visual and auditory parts of the brain, it's much more than just turning the pages of a book. We've discovered we have altered the neurochemistry of the brain and actually the neural structure of the brain. How has it been changed? And is it similar to other addictions, or is this a new way of rewiring the brain that's different than the, the chemical addictions? It's actually the same. But because 
it is at such a high speed, it's now discovered to be more addictive than alcohol. It's 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 called sometimes the the as, as addictive as crack cocaine, and for some even more addictive because you can get rid of crack cocaine, you can get it out of your system and not have access to it. But it's pretty hard once you have those images in your imagination to completely free yourself of them. Well, there so was a. I'm sorry, there was a book that Bishop Conley, who's the um, Episcopal Advisor for the Catholic Medical Association, recommended to us to read on uh, iGen, or the, the current Generation Z Kids. And in that book, the author says that some of her psychology students, she's a, a college professor, talk about their phones the same way that an addict talks about crack cocaine, just like that line you used. Now, I know yes. I shouldn't, but I can't help it. Yes. And, and and they're just so uncomfortable without it. They they say that they just feel more comfortable if they have their phone near them, which is kind of a curious thing. Um, and and so it's disrupting their sleep. It's it's almost an extension of who they are. Some of them have even described the iPhone helping them develop their identity. Mm. Oh. So wow. the identity phone. <laughs> so, sister, this last weekend, uh, I was at some gatherings, and I heard a, a college student say, well, you're talking about screen addiction. Yeah, but most people aren't addicted to their screens. If you see somebody using a screen that many hours, how do you, how do you make real to that person that, yeah, maybe you are addicted? The fact is they have looked at the, F, the functional MRI scans, and they've also looked at some of the high resonance scans, and they have found that there are alterations in the brain. And this person then feels good because of their social media interactions. And then they want more response, and they're, they're accessing it more. But too much screen time then causes withdrawal. And so they're going to crave it more and go after it more. And it can be so strong, they can be just in front of the Internet and not even actually um, looking at something, but they want to trigger a response. And so they're looking for some more social media, they're, but they're receiving less pleasure from it. We're seeing in these iGen, individuals who are born, you know, after 1975. You mean 95? Um, excuse me, 1995. Yes that yet children who are born after 1995, they are uh, wanting to get a driver's license much less often after high school. One of four senior high school students want to get a driver's license. They are dating less. They're describing lonely more. And it's because their whole social life is more often in their bedroom on their phone. That's interesting, sister. Now, I was going to ask you: Is isn't this a victimless crime? So <laughs> if I'm if I'm screen addicted, how does that anyway harm me or my family unit? But I think you, you speak to that quite well because you're you're not the person that you could be because of this addiction. We are also finding these individuals because they you know feel like they're missing out, so they 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 don't spend face-to-face time together, actual face-to-face time, but they spend quite a bit of time polishing up their posts on Instagram or the other social medias or the Snapchat. And they can spend hours retaking and modifying a picture, which is not even really reality. And they're waiting and waiting, waiting for somebody to like them. And if they don't get a response, then they think, oh, they don't like me. And then it becomes me they don't like, and it creating more anxiety. And so we're finding these individuals that are becoming more depressed and, and anxious. They're, they're sleeping less well because they've got their phone under their pillows or on their mattress, wanting to not miss something. They're less interested in school. We're even seeing that they are exhibiting a decline in their SAT scores. There was a significant yes. decline in the mid-2000s, especially in writing and critical reading, and they fell far behind the millennials that just preceded them. So there are significant manifestations that we had not seen before. They're less able to critically think, reflect, integrate, and create a composite picture to assess something, whether it fits or doesn't fit, and in a creative, integrative way. 
It's interesting, sister, as you think about the content versus sort of the technology, we've spent a fair amount of time talking about the, the pox on life that is pornography and this idea that pornographic images can actually create and change neural pathways. Is there something about the screen, it being an electronic image, that that makes it somehow different and or worse than an image, uh, for instance, a pornographic image that's on paper as opposed to the screen? Absolutely. When you think of um, the old days when you were going to get a pornographic magazine, you only got it once a month. And if you flip through those pages pretty fast, you're not going to see a thing. <laughs> but with electronic media, you can bring up 10, 12 different sites at once, and you can click through those different images, and they then stimulate your imagination. And the difficulty with Internet pornography is that you no longer need an iPhone or an iPad or a computer to re-stimulate your imagination because you have these now embedded in mm. your memory. And so you've got, you know, unfortunately a porn show in your brain and you're walking around with this and that's why it's more addictive than crack cocaine. That's interesting. Again, I've heard it said that yeah, I've heard it said that the average uh, child sees pornography first by seventh grade and the idea that that you were just describing that now this image is somehow electronically stamped on their brain at such a young brain when they're so underdeveloped. That really is quite frightening. Sister, what yes. are the actual changes that occur in a brain? And are some of them chemical, electrical, or even physical, anatomical? They're both. Okay. Um, one of the neurotransmitters that travels along the nerve cells in the brain is called dopamine. And we need dopamine because it, it um, influences the pleasure center of the brain. So, for example, if um, we have a, have a good meal or a company of a friend, we get a spritz of dopamine. So things that's pleasurable. And I think it's beautiful that God created us that when we're really, really hungry, if we have a good meal, then that's pleasurable. A spritz of dopamine is released. If we're really thirsty, you know, and, and then we take something to drink, it makes us feel good not just in our mouth. So pleasure also draws us to behaviors that help sustain the human species. And um, also for procreation, sexual pleasure, appropriately in a marriage um, situation. But too much pleasure then begins to overstimulate that reward center. Too much dopamine then prevents the prefrontal cortex, which is our executive function. It causes us to, to plan, to modulate behavior, to do something that's appropriate. Overstimulation of that pleasure center blocks the capacity of the prefrontal cortex to say, whoa, this is too much. We need to modulate the behaviors here because they're getting out of hand. So that's one thing that we're seeing. And then we see the withdrawal, we see the craving, just like you see with the other mm. substance abuses. But in addition, now we're, we're having um, research done by those who have done online gaming as well as internet pornography, and they have found that there's been a decrease in the cortical mass, and that's actually right. the mass mm. that is above our eyes, that has a prefrontal executive functioning. So those are very important because it allows us to to modulate our behaviors, but instead there's more impulsivity because there's less tissue there that's developed. When you think of the fact that teenagers have a very neuroplastic brain because they're not yet fully developed, they're particularly vulnerable to some of these effects of electronic media. So the moldable brain is being molded in these young kids so that there's less stuff up there to make good decisions with. Well, sister, this is the first half of our interview. We're going to take a quick break now and be right back with more Dr. Doctor. We're back with the second half of our interview with sister Dr. Marisha Weber about screen addiction. Sister, people are spending so much time on their smartphones, which, as we know, emits a blue light that somehow affects the brain. How does reading 
on a smartphone in bed at night influence the brain different than reading a book before falling asleep? Great question. Great question. The, when the body is so beautifully made, God made us so beautifully, that when we are ready to go to sleep and the lights are out in a room and it's dark, that causes the brain, the pineal gland in particular, to be suppressed, and then that then creates the body to release melatonin, which is the body's natural sleep aid. But when you have a blue-spectrum light from the screen of an iPhone in front of your eyes, it's telling your pineal gland, oh, it's not nighttime. It is daytime. So you are then preventing your body's natural sleep aid, melatonin, to be secreted. Now, my phone has a blue filter on it, which I've turned on. Does that make much of a difference? That does help. But when you think of the fact that 75% of 18- to 24-year-olds and 50% of adults look at their phone in the middle of the night. Oh, wow. So they are disrupting their sleep circadian rhythm. And they like to leave on their buzzes and their dings, which are cues that they might have received a text or a post. They might want to wake up and send something, so they're interacting. All of that is stimulating us to be awake. So we're, we're creating sleep deprivation and this disrupted sleep architecture. And we know that there are myriads of issues that are related to sleep deprivation. You know, daytime sleepiness, but it can compromise our thinking and our reasoning. We can be more susceptible to illnesses. Persons, when they're awake at night and can't fall back asleep, are more inclined sometimes to get up and eat something. So we see that related to weight gain. We know it's causing increased blood pressure because you're, you're activating your system instead of slowing it down. And persons who don't sleep enough are more prone to anxiety and depression. Sister, it's confession time. You can hear confessions as a sister. You just can't absolve anybody. <laughs> so... I noticed that I myself have been sucked into internet news surfing at time, and I've been cutting it out. I, I don't take my phone into any places where I'm getting together with people. Um, that's been helping. But why is that? Why, why do I want to surf for news even though I know I could be doing better things? What's going on with somebody like me when this happens? Well, it's like you're receiving a little spritz of dopamine. You know, if you get something you like, um, you know, when you think of operant conditioning, remember your high school psychology of Pavlov's dogs? Yes, you know, they associated the food with the ringing of a bell. Or, you know, rats, when they tap a lever, they get some food. So when you're surfing the web, you might find something that is of interest to you. So something that is exciting will give you a little spritz of dopamine. And so you're, you're getting a spritz of dopamine for your efforts of surfing. But it's a law of diminishing return, I've noticed. The longer I do it, the mm. less satisfying it is. You know, it's interesting. I have to admit, I gave up electronic news for Lent. And I said, I'm only going to read my news on paper during Lent. I was much happier. I think it really improved my attitude. Oh, yes. I gave up news aggregation websites several years ago for Lent and have not gone back because I was happier. Right. Sister, how does social media consumption affect the brain compared to television, compared to video games, compared to online learning like my homeschooled kids do, and compared to when I'm working on projects like when I'm writing papers or putting together PowerPoint presentations, or doing email, or even preparing for interviews like this one? Yeah, great, great distinction. Again, if, I, if you go back to what I said earlier about Marshall McLuhan, yes. and the key is the rate of delivery of images. Ah. So the faster the rate of delivery is more influential than simply the content. So an e-reader so, isn't nearly as damaging? Um, it's not as damaging. However, you're less likely to integrate information that you're on an e-reader because studies have shown that when we're looking at things that are e-reader, we don't read each word. Oh. We read almost in the shape of an F. 
where you go across all the way one line, maybe the second line, and then you drop down, and then you go through partway through another line, and you drop down. We're less engaged in online reading. So that, that sort of explains the almost romantic feeling about holding a nice hard, hardback book, doesn't it? Uh, because you're not, you're not processing the information in the same way. But you, it, it allows you to read a few sentences, engage in character development, and it's a whole other experience. Mm. And you can go back to it. You know, DeMarc, when you stop, you know, so much when you're reading online and you click on something else and it sends you to a different site and you yes. don't know where you went, and, <laughs> and it's hard to... It, it, if you're reading a book, it, it almost invites you to reflect on what you're reading because you're not just rapidly going through it. It's by lightning space because it allows you to think, to reflect, to maybe pause, to integrate material. It's engaging your frontal lobe, that executive function. So is this video learning or on-screen learning affecting our current students in the schools? Yes, it, it is. It is been noted that individuals who predominantly are using screens at school, coupled with the statistics you gave us earlier of the screen time they used for their, quote, leisure time, results in them not really taking in things that they have even looked at. And I'll go back to the significant decline in SAT scores. Um, now they're being seen especially in writing and critical reading, because they, this passive reception of, an, of indiscriminate data is too much for somebody to integrate, and so it, it lulls you into a passivity. Passive. Now, if, if you have then specifically set a goal and then write out a specific intent in what they're looking at and make that very clear, you know, some specific goals and objectives that then they have to write down, then they're going to more likely integrate it. Or if you have students then who then get together and then do a class presentation and somebody look at the geography of a place and then maybe, you know, the, the culture or something else and present it to one another, you're engaging them in face-to-face. -face. That's more effective learning. Hmm. So, Sister, as we're heading toward the end of the interview, we want to now get into practical things. What should we do? Is there a healthy amount of screen type, time, and does it vary by use, like texting, email, news reading, gaming, working, or education programs? Gaming is highly addictive, hmm. and so that's something to really be aware of. Again, high-speed interactive gets you so involved. Um, the others, it's hard to say. It's not so much the amount of time for adults. It's... Um, it's all, all those together. There's, not everybody is addicted if they're texting or emailing. This right. is what I'm trying to say. Yes. But the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends no media before age two. That includes television. Wow. They also recommend limiting technology to one hour per day for children between the ages of two and five. Wow. And for older children, because they don't want to say how long, they say create a balanced media plan that's consistent with family values. But we have to really look at what those family values are. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, you know, we need to pray for our children. We need to teach them about their dignity, made in God's image and likeness. Maintain a, an active presence. There's so much violence on television, things that don't have moral values. We need to help them construct stories about themselves that are law-abiding, empathic, socially competent. Help them reflect on what they're viewing on media that's violent. Is it real or pretend? How do you know? What if they did that to daddy, to mom? You know, would it hurt if they, you know, shot you, did that? Are there better ways to resolve problems? So have you know, conversations with our children about what they're seeing on screens. Absolutely. It's funny, Absolutely. Listen, I think listening, so. listening to your sister, I think about the wisdom that certainly isn't mine. It, but it, it, you, could all, you could almost simplify this discussion to dinners. You know, families need to sit at tables together without anything electronic, and they need to interact and argue and uh, and share in order to grow as people. Absolutely. To learn, you know, turn-taking, face-to-face social skills, asking one another about one another's day, having, you know, one of the children help you set the table, 
um, prepare, you know, some of the vegetables, go feed the cat, learn about <laughs> service, some of these simple things, all the things we used to do before internet became available. If we identify that we or our children uh, are or may be suffering from screen addiction, what are the first steps we should take? Well, the first step is to eliminate any use of leisure time with social media, the social media that is available, and then begin to turn to more face-to-face contact. Um, also, again, um, talking in, in a family setting at meals, not having a cell phone in the bedroom at all, doing more physical activities, and if there is a real sign of addiction, you know, there are centers now that are available to help kids and teenagers and adults. And basically, they hike, they learn how to cook, they um, play <laughs> ping pong, they wash their clothes. Now, wait a second. That's something pretty no radical. Yeah. Electronic like ping pong. <laughs> <laughs> pong. I remember when that came out. Sister, you've been working uh, on a short animated video about screen addiction. How can our uh, listeners find a link to this? Well, it's up and coming on the Catholic Medical Association website, and that's at cathmed, C-A-T-H-M-E-D dot org. And hopefully in the next couple of weeks, they'll be ready and available for persons to um, pick up a link and um, share with friends, family, um, basically that um, will also help point out the the, the need and um, some of the cautions of, of how to really address this. And finally, what other information would you like to leave with our listeners about screen addiction? You know, I think what comes to mind is what Pope Francis said it in a recent World Communication Day message. You know, the Internet is something that's truly good. It's a gift of God. It depends how we use it. But he also cautioned that high-speed world of digital social media needed a calm, reflective place of tenderness so that it's not a network of wires but of people. Mm, I think the key good. is that real human interaction. We're created to love and be loved. It's known and be known. That's the whole purpose. And I think that that's what we need to get back to and accent and augment and intensify. And that's what's going to bring us more happiness. Well, so, Sister Tom, Tom, not Sister Tom, Sister, comma, Tom, <laughs> I feel like I've just listened to a terrific homily more than an interview. <laughs> Sister, thank you so much for the, uh, for the wisdom that you've imparted. I, I know you've motivated Tom and I and all of our listeners to go home and rethink our screen usage. Thanks, Sister. God bless you and all the great work you're doing. Thank you so much. We're back with that time of the show that people look forward to with the answer to the medical trivia question of the day. Well, I thought you were going to say the sign-off, Tom. This is the different part they look forward to. (laughs) If they're looking forward to the sign-off, they can do that themselves, Chris. So if they're still with us... They're with us. They're with us. So when you look at your forearms, you see blue veins, but are the veins really blue? Is the blood in veins blue or just the outside lining blue? And... If they aren't blue, why do they look blue? So, first question. Are or is the blood in your veins blue? And the answer is... No. No, it's not. It's actually kind of a dark red or maroon color. And the blood in arteries is more of a a bright red color. So we knew it was always a, a more worrisome thing in medical school and thereafter if we saw bright red blood versus dark red or maroon blood. The maroon blood is usually coming out slowly because veins are at low pressure, arteries are at high pressure. Well, then why does it have that blue look to it, Tom? Well, it looks blue because of the depth beneath the skin at which the veins lie. So if arteries were at the same depth beneath the skin, they would also look blue. It has to do with something in physics called the Tyndall effect. And this is light Uh, goes down a certain level into the skin, and most of it is absorbed, but the shortest wavelength of light is blue, and that is reflected back while all the other colors are uh, absorbed. So it's merely kind of a a physics trick that is going on. For instance, when I operate uh, on the skin, and I often see veins, when I'm actually looking at a vein, 
it's actually white. It's just full of connective tissue of collagen. There, there's no particular color to it. And on some websites, it said that, well, the, the blood in veins really is blue. It's just when it hits the air, it oxygenates and turns red. Nope. Nope. Not true. <laughs> so that, that's another uh, uh, false myth as opposed to true myths. So, And then why were the royalty referred to as blue bloods? Well, it, there might be a couple reasons for this. One of them is that they really valued skin being pale because any change in color to the skin, just like in you know a century ago in Southern America, was associated with being a manual laborer. Correct. And so the blue veins would show up even more starkly against that white background. Uh, but I read something else interesting, and that is they were eating all their meals with silver, uh, with silverware, true silver. And if the silver got leached out by some of the foods into their system, they could get what's called argyria or connect or a collection of si silver in the, the tissues, which has kind of a bluish appearance. So that may have been another reason. So <clears throat> the blood in veins is not blue in any human being. And tonight we have a short interview we've been hanging on to to play at just the right time. And this is just the right time. It's an interview with Dr. John Traveline about a hospital which is planning to be built in the Diocese of Lansing that follows Padre Pio's uh, ideal for a hospital being the house for the relief of suffering. We have a special segment today. We are talking again with guests from a previous show, uh, Dr. John Traveline, who's one of the editors of Catholic Witness and Healthcare, which can be purchased on Amazon or Barnes & Noble for $45, a 513-page book that's good for the learned lay reader as well as the medical professional or medical professional in training. The last chapter of the book is called A Model of Catholic Care, the CASA, which means house, and it comes after the idea of that St. Padre Pio had where hospitals would be places where people would be relieved of their suffering. Would you expand on that, John, for our audience? Yeah, this was, as you said, Tom, the, the, the chapter goes into St. Padre Pio's vision for authentic Catholic care, and, and uh, clearly uh, maybe some might say ahead of his time, so to say, but this this tertiary quaternary care facility in southern eastern Italy providing authentic Catholic care, so state-of-the-art medical care, but just as state-of-the-art, uh, great attention paid to the spiritual dimension of, of, of everyone, no less patients who are afflicted with uh, illness in this hospital or cared for in this hospital. It's, um, it's steep with Catholic um, care and it's a beautiful um, realization of how good medical care is delivered to the to the human person. And you were just there within the last year, were you not? I was, and and was privileged really to to meet with um, uh, one of one of our uh, co-authors for the chapter uh, on the Casa, uh, who I had only known through email communications and so on, and uh, it was very privileged to have had a tour of that uh, of that Casa to spend a, a full day there, and it was quite uh, quite enriching. How is it different than the standard hospital where you have practiced in the United States? Well, even and I've I've practiced. I'm in a non. I'm in a secular institution. Have been for a few decades, but I've had uh, experience uh, limited in other in in Catholic hospital systems. And um, what's clearly different is certainly the um, the awareness of the spiritual dimension for care. They're very explicit in a Catholic institution with with uh, with a chapel imagery in the hallways, um, uh, prayer um, uh, in, in openly uh, with with uh, patients and staff. So um, this is this is probably the most obvious of differences. One of the main things that I was interested in learning about was that this idea might be coming to the U.S. Is that right? That's correct. There, um, in 2011, a medical clinic opened in um, the Appalachia region in, in Kentucky, uh, and, and is, is is thriving, as I understand. But I, I learned recently, just about a month ago, um, the end in, uh, in December, that. Um, 
the Catholic Healthcare International announced uh, uh, it's been part of the vision of of CHI to replicate St. Padre Pio's model for hospital in the United States. And uh, there was an announcement made that the the Bishop of Lansing, uh, of the Diocese of Lansing, Michigan, um, just generously donated some 40 acres of land, I believe, uh, for for developing this sort of uh, this project. So that is to to replicate uh, a casa uh, in the United States. So it's very exciting, and uh, we'll have to stay tuned and see where this goes. But it's extremely exciting because many of us in in healthcare um, love to see how healthcare um, uh, is done in this richly faith-filled environment. Can you give me a a concrete example of how the CASA might differ from other Catholic hospitals where we may have worked or had family members as patients? It may be be in the magnitude of the um, Catholic identity in in the CASA. Certainly Catholic hospitals, I think, do a very uh, wonderful job in terms of the imagery as one walks through the halls and in the patient rooms, uh, in the procedure rooms, for example, where there, there often is a crucifix on one of the walls. Um, I think uh, I think something that models the cost would just be in, in terms of the magnitude being much greater in terms of that Catholic identity, more explicit, perhaps, um, I think that that'll be a a major difference. I think that is one of the main goals of the Catholic Medical Association, especially, is to try and reestablish what may be some lost ground in Catholic medicine in America. And we really appreciate your witness, and and not only that, but also your book, The Catholic Witness in Healthcare, Practicing Medicine in Truth and Love, available on Amazon, $45. Dr. John, thank you so much for being willing to come in and talk to us today. You're most welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, signing off for Dr. Doctor until next time. Remember that your medical decisions could have profound consequences. The decisions you make today, consequences tomorrow. So make good choices. Choose Catholic.